the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season seven of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thank you very much for tuning in. We're diving into the new Here Comes Sunshine box set in this episode as we time travel back to the May 13th, 1973 show in Des Moines, Iowa, a monster three-set show loaded with great jams. Speaking of the Here Comes Sunshine box set, it is a new release coming your way. It's a 17-CD limited edition set available exclusively from Dead.net that features five previously unreleased concerts, recorded during the band's transformative spring of 1973 tour. The shows included in this set are Iowa State Fairgrounds, Des Moines, Iowa, 513-73, Campus Stadium, UCSB, Santa Barbara, 520-73, Kizar Stadium, San Francisco, 526-73, and Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium in Washington, D.C. on the 9th and 10th of June, 1973. The June 10th, 73 show will also be available as a standalone release in two configurations, a four CD set and an eight LP set. The 17 CD set and the four CD set will be released on June 30th and will also be available digitally. And the eight LP set comes on July 28th. You can pre-order all of the Here Comes Sunshine 1973 releases now over at dead.net. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast and check out all of our past episodes, including the complete seasons one through six, and you can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen how you like to listen. Please help this podcast by subscribing, hitting that like button, sharing on social media, and if the spirit moves you, leave us a review. Thank you very much. We have transcripts for many of your favorite deadcast episodes available for your reading pleasure. We've recently uploaded Season 1, so pop on over to dead.net slash deadcast-index and check them out. And thanks to everyone who's left their stories over at stories.dead.net. We're now asking you to share those stories about going to shows in 1973. Did you catch any good ones that great year? The dead were on fire, and we want to hear your first-hand account. Share those stories over at stories.dead.net, and you just may hear yourself on the Deadcast. Well, today we time travel to the Dead's massive three-set show in Des Moines, Iowa in May of 1973, and we get stories from Donna Jean, the show's promoters, the Dead's office staff, plus we talk custom gear, big jams, and an indoor fireworks fight. Jesse's in the next room with a Roman candle and a fireplace lighter. Looks like he's ready to go. At the start of the Here Comes Sunshine box set, time travelers step out into Des Moines, Iowa, May 13, 1973, where the Grateful Dead played outdoors at the state fairgrounds. It was an epic show, one of the longest the band ever played, and we've got a suitably epic episode. Sunshine. 
Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux. The Dead by this point, by May, they'd already done two quite extensive tours. They'd done the Midwest tour in February and then the, the, the March tour into April 2nd. They'd hardly taken the six weeks off. In mid-April, the band officially formed their own record company, Grateful Dead Records, as we talked about in our first Here Comes Sunshine episode. And Jerry Garcia played extensively with both Merle Saunders and Olden in the Way, as we discussed last time. In Des Moines, the Grateful Dead began two and a half months of gigs that would build to their biggest ever live performance later that summer at Watkins Glen. The Des Moines recording on Here Comes Sunshine represents a pretty major upgrade from what had previously circulated among collectors. I find the Des Moines show to be something that start to finish is the Grateful Dead laying it on the Midwest where they had just played, they had just done a Midwest tour in February with all this new material. And here they, and they were playing arenas, it was February, smaller arenas. And here they are playing to 15 or 20,000 people outdoors. And they're saying, okay, everyone, this is the new Grateful Dead, get used to it. Unless otherwise noted, all the music in today's episode comes from the May 13, 1973 show in Des Moines. The Dead had just released Europe 72 seven months earlier, in November. Since coming back from the Europe tour, they'd introduced a bit of new material, specifically Stella Blue and Mississippi Half-Step. But in February 1973, added a major batch of new Jerry Garcia, Robert Hunter songs to the book. Eyes of the World, Here Comes Sunshine, China Doll, They Love Each Other, Road Jimmy, Loose Lucy, and Wave That Flag, which would become U.S. Blues. And they certainly didn't stop playing their older, newer songs. Now they're newer, older songs. These shows are like 30 and 32 songs per show. And that's, uh, most eras in the Grateful Dead's history, a show is 22 to 25 songs. These are 33, 32 song shows. They don't want to stop playing. There's, there's, some of them are three set shows. They want to play and they aren't just little songs. There's 20 minute playing in the bands. There's 20 minute other ones. There's things like that. lot of excellent things. Grateful Dead's Des Moines 1973 show began in a record store. Please welcome from Music Circuit, Steve White. I had a record store, my wife and I did, for 23 years. December 15th, 1971, and it closed July 10th, 1994. It was records, underground music rags we distribute there. It was a head shop too, pipes, papers, all those things as well tapestries, sold some stereo equipment every now and then. I had a good line on stereo equipment, so people would come in, give me their order. I'd order from a distributor and then sell that too. In the early 1970s, Music Circuit would live up to its name, becoming the state's most popular independent record store and a central node for live music in Iowa and the surrounding regions. 
And from the Music Circuit record store came Music Circuit presentations, co-founded by the self-described country bumpkins, Steve White, known as Whizzer, along with his friends, John Hoke and Jim Henneberry. Please welcome John Hoke. Steve and Jim and I are long, long time uh, friends, and we were, you know, entered in this together. But I think one of the amazing things is we were all very close friends from high school. We stayed friends. We did all this promoting. And here we are 50 years later, and we're still all very close friends. With a home base at Music Circuit, Whizzer had begun to sell tickets for concerts in neighboring cities and do promotion around them. The way it started was we wanted to make money. We thought <laughs> promoting rock concerts would be a fun and quick way to make money. And uh, we've our, our history before we promoted this dead show was one show at the Surf Ballroom in uh, Clear Lake, Iowa, REO Speedwagon. After we promoted that show, we thought we were big promoters and on the go. That's how, from there, wanted to promote the Grateful Dead at the Iowa State Fairgrounds. The newly formed music circuit presentation certainly aimed big. The fairgrounds is perfectly suited. It's the Iowa State Fairgrounds. It had a large grandstand. Uh, it has camping space for 10,000 people. And somebody had promoted a show there the year before. And so that's how we picked them. I mean, it's the ideal spot. It's centrally located in the Midwest. One ongoing theme of this podcast is the way the Grateful Dead seemed to inspire certain streaks of entrepreneurialism and invention, and in some ways became a magnet for it. Looking through the Dead's booking in the 1960s, whenever a new psychedelic ballroom opened or festival launched, it was almost required that they book the Dead. Though they weren't particularly deadheads, and music circuit didn't start precisely with the Dead, it would be the dead that kicked them into gear. We started by going to the Iowa State Fairgrounds and saying, hey, we got this really great idea. You know, you know, here we are, a bunch of rookies, and we'd like to promote uh, big rock concerts at, at there. And somehow they listened to us and they were interested in making money as well. And they gave us a couple dates. There was just one question they had. How did one even book the Grateful Dead? Their first stop was Sepp Donahauer and Pacific Presentations, who promoted the Dead show at the Fox Theater in October 1972, which we covered during our Listen to the River episodes. We contacted him first at the recommendation from an ICM booking agent from the, that booked the Iowa State Fair. That didn't work, but it revealed a fascinating tidbit of Grateful Dead information that I don't think has ever been mentioned. In the Dead's archives, I noticed a piece of communication between the Music Circuit Gang and Sepp Donahauer that mentioned a phone call between Music Circuit and Irving Azoff? Irving Azoff would infamously go on to an illustrious career managing the Eagles and some other musicians you may know about. We were able to ask Sepp Donahauer about it. Irving and I were close from the day he in LA, and I introduced him to the Grateful Dead. I have a SX-70 Polaroid picture of Rock Scully and Irving Azoff in my office with Irving giving me the finger. That picture is interesting because it was his introduction to the Grateful Dead that night in my office. 
So what the hell was Irving Azoff doing negotiating on the part of the Grateful Dead? Well, I'm going to tell you a story. Sam Cutler hired Irving. Sam actually pulled Irving into his operation for a short time window. And they didn't get along, and then Sam fired him or they split up. If all goes according to plan, we'll have Sam back sooner than later. But I did email out-of-town co-founder Gail Helen, who replied, yes, Irv did work for out-of-town tours for a short time, less than a week as I recall, right at our beginning. He couldn't stand our laid-back lifestyle, and he was too L.A. for us. No harm, no foul, just oil and water. Well, it does sound like kind of a good light show. Yeah, I can't see those two staying together in a room too long. Music Circuit Presentations must have contacted Out of Town exactly during that tiny window when Irving Azoff was apparently trying to escape David Geffen in Asylum a few months before he assumed full-time management of the Eagles. Whatever it was he was doing at Out of Town tours that week, it wasn't helpful to Music Circuit Presentations, who moved on to Plan B. I contacted uh, Barry Fay and told him about the fairgrounds, and he wanted me to meet him in Lincoln, uh, Nebraska, at Pershing Auditorium, where he had an Alice Cooper show he was promoting. And that's where I made contact with him, and from there he went to Bill Graham and put together the show. Barry Fay of Feyline Productions would work with Bill Graham and the Dead for many years. Just as the guys at Music Circuit used the dead to break into the concert promotion business, it seems Bill Graham was using the dead to break into Iowa. John Hoke. And to me, the, the number one theme that comes out of it is, I can't believe how many people trusted us, had the confidence in us to do this. We're 23 years old. Other than Steve, had no, no real experience in this at all. We were the three Iowa country bumpkin stereotypes, so I'm sure Barry Fay spotted that right off the bat. How Barry Fay and Bill Graham took a you know took a chance with us is just mind-boggling to me. Though they may have been inexperienced, in 1973, much of the music business was inexperienced. Giant tours that rolled smoothly through the heartland from amphitheater to amphitheater were hardly the norm, and everybody was making it up as they went along. It wasn't scheduled for the tour. Bill Graham actually talked the Grateful Dead into packing up, coming to Des Moines as a rehearsal, then packing everything back up, going back to San Francisco, and then starting the tour the following week. I mean, he did us a huge favor. We owe a lot. We owe everything to Bill Graham and the Grateful Dead. The May 13th show at the fairgrounds was the opening of the band's late spring touring season and the opening of Here Comes Sunshine. But the road to Des Moines was anything but direct. Back in San Rafael, at Out of Town Tours, the Dead's tour manager and now booking agent Sam Cutler was assembling the Dead's Spring 73 shows along with his team, a process we're going to examine a little bit more. Sam surrounded himself with an extremely capable support staff. His first hire was Gail Helland, then married to Olympic guitar ace Rick Turner. But Gail had been deeply embedded in the Dead's world for years, starting as a member of the Jefferson Airplane family and soon involved deeply in the Dead's business universe. There was just John McIntyre and me and Lenny Hart. 
That was it. That was the whole staff. We don't have time for the story today, but someday we'll get to how Gail helped bust Lenny Hart's financial shenanigans and then, with her most excellent memory, helped John McIntyre rebuild the band's operations, becoming a member of the band's ground control at the band's San Rafael headquarters at the corner of 5th and Lincoln. On the back of Working Man's Dead, she's credited as Cosmic Gale, lady-in-waiting. My daughter was born December 7th, 1971. So I, I'm the lucky one who got to stay home and do everything for Europe 72. When they came back from Europe, Sam called me up and said, okay, you've had enough time off now. The baby will be fine. Uh, you know, y- you need to come back to work. And, you know, I, I needed money just like everybody else needed money. So I went back to work. We finally got sick of paying everybody else 10% for everything that we did and decided to pay ourselves. So that's when we split into all the companies that were at 1330 Lincoln. Gail Helen had watched the deals go down and was ready to be a part of them. We moved out of 5th and Lincoln to take over at 1330 Lincoln. That is when we became, we, we took everything in-house. And that was the beginning of out-of-town tours as well. So Frankie Weir took over being the travel agent. Out-of-Town Tours was a separate company. It was 80% owned by Sam, 10% owned by me, and 10% owned by Francis, his girlfriend, Francis Carr. In turn, Gail's first hire was Rita Gentry, coming from the Sons of Champlin branch of the Bay Area musical family. We didn't realize till after she, you know, hired me and stuff there that we knew each other when we were teenagers, when we roller skated at Skateland at the Beach in San Francisco, and we dated twins. And I was like, oh, my God, how did this happen? And now we went from this little virgin nice girls to we're in this heavy-duty rock and roll whatever together. After the dead, Rita would go on to a long career working for Bill Graham and recently assembled and published a wonderful oral history, Before I Forget, Moments and Experiences with Bill Graham. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. One thing that many people, including Rita, brought to the dead universe was experience in the straighter corners of the music world. I learned contracts for my very first job at 680 Beach Street in San Francisco. I worked for a guy that booked artists in, you know, Reno and Tahoe, more like club acts, anything from a juggler to you name it. I was living in San Francisco, sharing a house with a married couple. And he managed an act called Natural Act, which was a band from back in the day. His name was Jack or John Porchette, AKA Jack Rabbit. And Jack Rabbit was my roommate and his wife. And what happened was he got offered to be a booker at Out of Town Tours. And so he said, you know, do you want to, we have to move to Marin. Do you want to come with us? And I said, yeah, no problem. He goes, oh, by the way, there's a company that I'm going to work for, Out of Town Tours, who is looking for someone that can do contracts. And you do contracts all the time for artists. So I said, okay, perfect. And that was my step into the door of the Grateful Dead realm and Sam Cutler. 
In our Grateful Dead & Co. episode, Rosie McGee described the Annie Leibovitz photo of the band's professional world. Gail's sitting next to me with her baby, and Jack, Jack Rabbit is sitting next to me on the other side. And I very feel very honored to be in that photo. Many of the people in that photo could be found working at 1330 Lincoln. Cosmic Gale. The first floor was street level, so it was pretty mundane, except Frankie moved in there into one corner and had fly-by-night travel there. And then George Walker had an office in there, too. And he kind of came and went. You know, the merry prankster George Walker. So we were on the second floor of that building, and it was just a totally normal office building. And if people got on the elevator there and pushed the second floor by accident, <laughs> the doors opened to the elevator and all the light covers were, were, all the lights were covered with tie-dyes. It was totally psychedelic. It was insane. It was like they would just go walk backwards, go back into the elevator and push the button. Get me out of here. Where am I? I don't know where I am, but it's not right. It was always like a cloud of smoke in the elevator. It smelled like weed constantly. If you got off the elevator on the second floor, it smelled like pot. It was, you know, every, everything was tie-dyed. Courtney covered every single light fixture with tie-dyes. And we all just roamed freely in there, going back and forth to the offices to get everything done. It was really efficient. It really worked well. We had the regular management offices for both the New Riders and the Grateful Dead separately. You know, they had their own offices. Everybody was in 1330 Lincoln, pretty much, except the people that stayed down at the main house. And that was mostly like Rackout. Down at the band's once and future office at 5th and Lincoln, Ron Rackow, Jerry Garcia, Steve Brown, and others started to assemble Grateful Dead records. At 13.30, the tours got put together. Rita Gentry. It was quite a little community. I was always afraid of getting dosed. I was always... I was a, a Coca-Cola can drinker, and I still drink Coke to this day. And I always would never let my Coke be alone. Ozzy would come in, and I would just be like... Oh my God, he's going to dose me, you know? But it was always in the back of my mind. Luckily, I escaped that thing, that it didn't happen to me. Probably a good thing, too, because there was some real work to get done. Courtney was part of what was going on with the tie-dyes, and he had a friend named Jerry something or other, who was an accountant who taught me how to be the accountant for out-of-town tours. I mean, he sat there with books and taught me how to be an accountant, you know. So we did everything like that to be completely self-sustaining, not didn't need to hire other people and pay them. We realized how much we were paying everybody else and said, nah, we can do all of this. We're smart people. We're all done playing, playing, playing. Another woman in the out-of-town office was Sally Mann Romano, author of the bodacious memoir, The Bands With Me, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. When I was working for Cutler, they were the number, the dead were the number one grossing concert act in, in America, ahead of the Beach Boys and everything. So they, they definitely were on the ascendancy. 
It was an era of Megadead. Rita Gentry. There was a conference room, and someone had built this gigantic, beautiful table, wooden table. I'm pretty sure that Sam Cutler brought that table back from Europe. And then it seemed like each month, a new hand-carved chair would come in to that office. And then I always wondered, what happened to all those beautiful carved chairs? There's a picture in Geraldine Brantla's book, too. It's taken of me, and it's Ramblin' Jack, it's Jack Rabbit, it's the manager of Stone Ground. And, and, and that's one of my favorite pictures, too, because we're actually in the Out of Town Tours conference room. And it's funny because we hardly ever went in that room. The only people that really went in that room seemed to me was the band or the crew when they were having meetings. It was serious biz. When I think of out of town tours, I think of Halliburton cases. Everybody had a freaking Halliburton briefcase with, with, with the course, you know, the dead logo on the thing. Some had uh, rose gold, other ones that road crews had like silver ones. I always wanted a, you know, a Halliburton briefcase. <laughs> So when the country bumpkins proposed to Barry Fay that the dead play in Des Moines in May of 73, and Barry Fay suggested it to Bill Graham, it was Sam Cutler's phone at 1330 Lincoln that rang, where Graham probably first reached Sally Mann Romano. Oh, my God. They're like, yeah, they're like the twin towers of hollerings. Plus that that hilarious thing of executives where nobody wants to be the first one to pick up the fucking phone. Like having the red phone on the president's desk because, you know, Bill and and Sam are going to talk to each other. I know later on the dead were not all that appreciative of how he conducted business, but they got it done. And Sam made the dead a lot of money. And Bill Bill made everybody a lot of money. I can only remember seeing Bill lose it maybe only once, and I can't remember who he was hollering, about, hollering at. It might have been David Crosby or somebody like that. But you didn't even want to be in the blast range. You sort of <laughs> stepped back. <laughs> and once he got it flying, it, it wasn't a pretty sight. You know, he's just extremely bombastic when, when he was in that zone. I believe that you could avoid Bill's wrath if you just don't do just incredibly stupid stuff, you know. Um, but Cutler, he kind of, once he got going, it, it it was going. Rita Gentry. My experience at out-of-town tours was very educational. Educational in, in, in ways of survival. Educational in the way of dealing with many personalities and many male personalities. You had your management staff, you had your road crew, and then you had your peripheral people, you know, husbands, whatever, hell's angels, you name it, they were there. And so I give credit and hats off to Sam for letting me have that experience because there was nothing like that. And that was my first experience before Bill of working with somebody, a boss, who yelled and screamed. It's like, oh, my God. I don't come from that background of yelling and screaming, okay? And when that first started happening, I was going, what the hell have I gotten myself into? 
But then it's like, okay, you know. But then once they would get off the bone and stop yelling, they would go back to being their normal self. It was just so weird to me. Sally. Part of this deal, too, is like there's this network of sort of promoter, the promoter mafia, you know, I mean, not, not, I don't mean the real mafia, but you had to work with these people to get booked into the, to the big show, you know, the big spaces. And John Shear controlled New York, except for the part that Bill had. And then Larry Maggot had Philadelphia. And I don't remember the guy's name that had Arizona, but these aren't just like, hippies they you know they weren't like oh why don't y'all come play a little it was a business and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars were at stake and you had that you no know, like in new york those people would have to work with the freaking teamsters and shit you couldn't just be all peace and love i mean it was the real deal and that's something that's so amazing about to me about bill is how on both coasts he worked with lawn People don't realize there's all these dopers coming to these shows. You have to be able to work with law enforcement and the Teamsters and other unions outside of New York. And it wasn't just, oh, let's go, let's put on a play, you know. (laughs) It wasn't at amateur hour. So Cutler and Bill, they knew what they were doing. It was an intense working environment. Rita. I think the women had a real camaraderie within there. I mean, I loved Eileen Law, and Gail and I to this day are still friends. And that's what I'll say about most all of that and that family is that we're still stay in touch with each other, and we may not see each other, but we'll send, you know, Christmas cards or an occasional text or email here and there and phone calls. And it's really, it's really amazing to me. It's fun working with people like that are absolutely at the peak of the entertainment industry. We were getting it done, and the band was making buttloads of money and touring. And the people around uh, all of these bands, every band that I've ever known, are good at what they do. They take it seriously, or they wouldn't last very long. And everyone from the roadies, even, you know, no matter if they get drunk and high on occasion, they know how to do their jobs. They do them well. Or they they just, you can't hang. It's just too much at stake. When the yelling was done, there was a lot of paperwork. And that's when it became Rita's job. The bookers would book the shows and do the deals. And then they would give me the information. Fortunately, I don't know where I got this, but I came up with like a standard contract. You know, and the same thing, back in the day, you used a typewriter. It was three copies, the, the white, the yellow, and the pink. And you stick it in your typewriter They would give me the gist of the deals and all that kind of stuff. I would type it up, give it back to them. They would, you know, send it to whoever it was that was booking the show to get it signed. And then I had to follow it through to the very end. And that was, that was my deal as being, you know, the contract mistress. Once the contracts were signed, the tour itineraries would be delivered downstairs to fly-by-night travel. The Grateful Dead didn't rely on tour buses in the early 70s. They flew commercial. Hey, it's Donna Jean Godshow McKay. I was never on tour with them in a bus. It was flying everywhere. It was flying in limousines, flying hotels and limousines, and flying in hotels and limousines. And that was, that was where everything was at at that time. We talked about fly-by-night travel in our Grateful Dead & Co. episode. But to continue with the theme of what it actually required to put on a Grateful Dead show in 1973, we welcome back Rosie McGee, author of the incisive memoir Dancing with the Dead, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. 
It was the single most difficult and demanding job I've ever had to this day. To this day, there are no computers on my desk. There's not even a fax machine yet. And here's my list of tools. A telephone headset plugged into the phone, a typewriter, a 40-column accounting pad, a dozen pencils, several large erasers, and a jar of bennies. That's it. That's what I had to work with. At some point, an itinerary would arrive from the madhouse on the second floor. We would get an initial list. Well, first of all, a tour with just randomly, I'm going to say 28 people going to 37 cities. Okay, so with abandoned crew, most often having slightly offset schedules and uh, different travel dates and times, and sometimes they stayed in different hotels. First, I'd get a list, an initial list of personnel and cities and dates from the booking agent or the band managers, in this case, Sam. I'd start a grid on the 40-column accounting pad, in pencil, of course, <laughs> because it's going to be erasing. There's people on the left and the dates and the cities across the top. Then I put on the headset and I'd call the lead airline, which was the first outgoing flight on the tour, their group desk, and I'd verbally give them the list. There was no, no, you know, there was no quick way to get it to them in writing. So I verbally gave them the list. They had the computers on their end, and there were like room full of mainframes. And one time I got to go and visit a United Airlines mainframe facility at the San Francisco airport. It was really interesting. But they contacted all the downline other airlines to build the air itinerary, and then they called me back. And they verbally gave me what they had, which took about an hour to write down, you know. And then I filled in the spreadsheet based on what they told me, which flight, which date, who, who's going where, when. And in the meantime, Wilma and I would start researching hotels in the 20-pound paper hotel guide, you know, that we had. I mean, it literally, it's this gigantic, it's about, I don't know, eight inches thick, this gigantic book. And it'd start uh, penciling in hotels. During the brief Lenny Hart regime, there were tales of the dead getting banned from airlines, mostly resolved by the time fly-by-night came into the picture. Hotel banning is more common than airline banning. It's easier to trash a hotel room than to get in trouble with an airline. <laughs> to that end, we interrupt with a brief but relevant story that we've held on to for a while and is too good not to include in this space. It happened in the fall of 1972, just days after the Fox Theater shows on the Listen to the River box set, and just before Fly By Night earned its wings as legit travel agents. We can't stress this enough. Don't try this at home. And especially don't try it at a hotel like the Mark Plaza in downtown Milwaukee, now the Milwaukee Hilton, where this story took place. To tell it, we have the most excellent lighting director, Candace Brightman. We're doing a gig in Wisconsin, and this would be maybe, well, whenever McGovern was running. So at this hotel, the other people at the hotel were McGovern, 
who was running for president with his Secret Service people. Then there was a butcher's convention, and there was a hairdresser's convention, mostly gay men, and us. So right off the bat, and <laughs> oh, and so uh, that medicine was constant. I grew up in the Chicago area, and that's where we would go to buy fireworks because they're not legal. And so everybody had fireworks. Everybody in the band had bought an enormous amount of fireworks. So we have all these people staying in the same hotel, and so the fireworks just started going and going and going. And by going and going, Candace means inside. The dead were shooting fireworks inside. According to Dennis McNally's account, many of the rooms opened up onto the hotel's central atrium, and fireworks began to shoot across it, sending Secret Service agents ducking. pandemonium firework and also uh, when you get into an elevator you would get into an elevator with a gay hairdresser and a butcher butcher and a you know the whole thing was just marvelous and there was a air shaft and if you opened your windows to see what was going on in the air shaft a snowstorm of feathers because everybody was letting their pillows go and by golly they had feathers would come into your room so the next morning the poor dear Maids. <laughs> oh, so I was in heaven because this is my idea of like, yeah, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Please hold that last mischievous sentiment in your head when considering the following action by one of Candace's employers. And then Kreutzmann and came in and grabbed me and pulled me into the bathroom and lit off a whole hundreds of M80s and held the door shut. So I was stuck in the bathroom. <laughs> In Dennis McNally's immortal phrase, events assume their own momentum. So towards the end, Ben and I, who were the lighting crew, main lighting crew, and we would drive the truck. Sometimes I did, sometimes he did. But, you know, towards, I don't know, two or three o'clock, we thought, you know, probably be a good time to get out of here. Because it's something, you know, I guess we came and arrested some people and stuff. Specifically, they arrested one person, Keith Godshow apparently not feeling so mild-mannered in Milwaukee. When the police showed up and asked him for identification, the piano player told them, Fuck you, pig. I'm not showing you no fucking ID. And so Keith Godshow went off to jail. Donna Jean. That's a true story. (laughs) I think Keith, Keith and Kreutzmann were... I remember being in the room and and the, the window was open to the hotel and were they throwing fireworks out or something? I think it might have been something like that. But it was was it during the McGovern? Yep. No wonder he got arrested. I don't know why Kreutzmann didn't get arrested. He was part of it. He sure was. Somehow, Weir got Kreutzmann to an adjacent hotel where the drummer tuned in to what was probably legendary Milwaukee overnight jazz DJ Ron Kuzner and achieved something like jazz nirvana. Weir went back to bail out Keith. So it- Got in the lights, packed up, got in the lights truck, I mean, our own stuff, and drove off. And as we were, we were, I have an idea, but I would say maybe five miles away from the hotel, we were on some highway or an elevated thing, I don't know. And we looked at the hotel, and it was just fucking, every, you know, hundreds of fireworks were coming out of that air shaft. It was insane. 
And, it, you know, it, it just felt wonderful. Okay, maybe cross the Mark Plaza off that hotel list, Rosie. We did keep a list of uh, hotels that we couldn't go back to, you know, so that started pretty early. Tours could be bendable things. Then Sam would call down and say, hey, we're swapping Detroit and Chicago. Baltimore is out and we're adding three dates at the end. So, like I said, I put in my notes, shampoo, rinse, repeat many times. So you start to build a tariff for the flights from the 40-pound tariff book that's so heavy it's on a podium and redo, 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 you know, for the pricing of, of each leg of the flight. And in fact, there was lots and lots of this going on during the Grateful Dead spring of 1973. In between early May and mid-June, the Dead played the five shows that are now on the Here Comes Sunshine box set. But they also canceled or rescheduled at least another nine that got as far as being publicly advertised, and in some cases, even on sale. We'll touch on them chronologically as they come up in this series. Thanks so much to the scholars of Jerry Bass for sorting through this info most righteously, and where you can see it laid out chronologically. Originally, the Dead were considering opening their spring shows at the football stadium at St. Lawrence University in New York on May 5th, on a double bill with the great Leon Russell. In late March, the student paper announced that the university had signed contracts the day before and tickets were to go on sale in April. But possibly that was misreported, since that's the last mention I can find of the show. After that, the dead were scheduled to open their May in the Pacific Northwest, May 3rd in Portland, May 5th in Vancouver, and May 7th in Seattle. And you can see that Olden and the Way booked their first out-of-town shows around these gigs, which they did play, on May 8th and 9th in Eugene and Portland the former promoted by the good old Keezy's at the Springfield Creamery, Garcia's last show before Des Moines on the 13th. But according to local papers, the Dead themselves postponed the Northwest shows because Bill the Drummer cut his finger badly, rescheduling for late June. Shows now featured on the Pacific Northwest box set, including this magnificent bird song from Vancouver on June 22nd. Eventually, at the end, like, you know, a couple of days before departure, we would have a marathon night with three of us handwriting tickets, pressing hard to go through the four copies of Carbon, stapling four sets of tickets together for each traveler. And more than once, the ticketing marathon was interrupted by Sam saying, Detroit and Chicago are back in their original sequence. And, you know, tough is hardly the word for that kind of work. I mean, this was crazy. So that's it. That's what it took. And uh, somehow we made it happen. And, you know, I about, about lost my mind on it. Oh, 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 oh,
Meanwhile, in Iowa, the guys at Music Circuit Presentations were starting to get their first dose of rock and roll reality. John Hoke. I remember the contract that they sent us was a very simple contract. It was two or three pages of contract, very simple, straightforward, easy. And then it had an attachment of an eight-page writer that had on there every detail that they wanted. I remember Heineken bottles, not cans, between 38 and 42 degrees. You had to have barbecue chicken at certain times along the way. The, you know, you had to have the cars to pick them up and all the limo. It went on into excruciating detail of everything that they needed. Steve White. Bill Graham called me uh, six days before the show and wanted to talk about the show and started asking questions. And about the third question, he I heard him tell his secretary, so-and-so, get Barry on the phone right now. And so Barry Faye got on the phone. And he goes, Barry, I got Mr. White on the phone here. He tells me you don't have anybody in Des Moines helping out with this show. Is that right? And Barry said, well, White's doing the work. And Bill Graham said, Barry, White needs all the help he can get. You have to have someone in Des Moines tomorrow morning. And he emphasized morning. And sure enough, Barry Face guy was here the next morning putting together a show that we didn't know what we were doing, if you want to be honest, if you want us to be honest about it. It's embarrassing to say us being great entrepreneurs, and we read that writer, you know, it had Hank and beer and steak and chicken. We thought we were going to have some cost-saving measures, bring out hot dogs and old Milwaukee beer. That's one of the things, you know, when Bill Graham, you know, told Barry Fay. White needs all the help he can get. <laughs> we were smart enough to know that we needed help, whether it was by Barry Fay or Bill Graham or the sound crew or others. We were pretty easy to get along with that way. And what we did is we got the venue. We were able to secure that. And as, as Steve said, he had a good network, you know, a, a lot of places and did a lot of promoting around, especially the state of Iowa and then in the Midwest. We'd advertised in Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, Minneapolis, Omaha, uh, the station, I think it was called Beaker Street in Little Rock. Just remember to say hello to the third man on the two-party line. This is KAAY, Little Rock. I'm Clyde Clifford. Clyde Clifford's Beaker Street Radio on KAAY in Little Rock was the first underground radio show on a commercial AM station, starting in 1966. We bought a lot of radio, a lot of radio and a lot of music rags, too. But it was ticketing where music circuit presentations not only had their act together, but figured out an innovative system all their own. The music circuit record store had sold tickets for numerous local shows, and they had a sense of how that part of it worked. So they built their own network of independent music stores and adjacent heady businesses in the region. John Hoke. Steve really added value, though, is he he had his own record store, Music Circuit, in Des Moines, and he knew a lot of these uh, people that ran these stores. So it was his personal connections that we were really playing off of. And I think it's one of the places we actually added some value by getting getting out to such a wide network. We picked out our own outlets, predominantly record stores all over the Midwest and the cities that I mentioned before. 
And once in a while, it'll be like a music store where they sell, you know, band equipment, amps, guitars, and all that. And once in a while, a hip clothing store. But most of them were record stores. You know, we probably had 70 ticket outlets that we set up ourselves. And the way we delivered our tickets was by a runner would go out and deliver the tickets and get the people to sign the ticket agreement. Then when we had to replenish the tickets, the Greyhound bus, that was how we put them, got them to the outlets. Put them on the bus. A lot of times they were returned the same way. A lot of times if we hadn't, let's say if we didn't trust the outlet, we'd send somebody to pick them up. But Greyhound bus <laughs> helped us out a lot. I don't think it's a controversial take to say that the concert ticketing business has grown pretty convoluted at best in recent decades. And I'll let you fill in your own adjectives for the at-worst slot. But if anyone's looking for a new old system to try out, building a regional ticketing agency over a network of independent record stores sounds like a righteous experiment. But there were other places they needed a bit more help. We only have good things to say about Bill Graham. Seriously. It's a good thing Bill Graham had somebody come out because we were going to pitch a tent on top of the stage. And Bill Graham insisted there couldn't be any poles in the middle. I remember Bill Graham said if we couldn't get something, he was going to bring out his $15,000 roof. And we freaked out at, at the cost of that. Bill Graham's high billing, a favored technique, as the dead might tell you, eventually resulted in another small piece of rock and roll innovation. So we hired the Safeway Scaffold Company here to come in and build a roof. And from then, we decided we need our own roof. So we had a ZZ Top concert about two weeks later, and we were rained out because of no roof. And we designed, patented, and put on the road a state-of-the-art roof. It was the standard of measure from 1974 to 1978. People all over the country amazed that these yahoos from Iowa could come up with something like that. But the Eagles toured with it for three years. Eric Clapton was the first one to take a chance on us with that. It was used by other shows throughout the country. Led Zeppelin down in Tampa Bay, uh, Peter Frampton in Richfield Coliseum in Buffalo. We, that stage and roof was used all over the country for a period of about four years. They might have been bumpkins at first but music circuit would come to contribute to the growing rock culture in the Midwest. There'd be some lessons first, starting when the first roadies rolled into town. They showed up one or two days ahead of time, actually. A Kid Candelaria did. I think Parrish was with them. Two other guys, maybe Ramrod. I'm not sure if he was there then. I think he was. There was four of them. I remember that. And I remember pulling up to the fairgrounds. Candelaria said, look at that marquee. They spelled Grateful Dead wrong, G-R-E-A-T-F-U-L. <laughs> that was a surprise to us, too. So that was the first thing we did when we pulled into the fairgrounds is got them to change the marquee. Thanks to the incredible Grateful Dead archives at UC Santa Cruz and the very lovely librarians that tend to the paper, we were able to look ever more deeply into the makings of the Grateful Dead in the spring of 1973. I encourage other scholars to get themselves to the special collections room in McHenry Library. Some of the details are mundane but fascinating. For example, with a pile of airline receipts, we confirm that Fly By Night didn't assemble the band's itineraries until May 11th for May 12th travel, with band and crew arriving the day before the Sunday afternoon show. Steve White. 
Back then, the car races at the fairgrounds happened on Saturday night, and they would attract 10,000 people every Saturday night, so they took precedence. And we couldn't do a lot of stage building until after the car races ended at 10. And then from 10 till right up to showtime, we were building a stage. But both years, uh, the dad and Bill Graham are there. They sat in the grandstand and watched the Saturday night car races with everybody else. All of the <laughs> 10,000 people at the car race. Imagine band and crew at the races in Des Moines on a spring night in 1973. When the races were over, it was time to set up the show. The fairgrounds had a permanent stage, but it wasn't quite dead ready. It was a 60 by 60 concrete slab, six and a half feet tall. So the stage was built. It was the sound wings that, you know, had to go up and uh, you couldn't put speakers on it because it it obstructed the car races at the time. So, you know, it wasn't the entire stage. Half Half the work was already done then. Sometimes Sunday morning, they were able to see what the dead had brought. What was unique, at least as far as we knew at the time, was the kind of sound system they put together. We called it the world's largest home stereo outdoors. I mean, that's with all these speakers. They look like speakers you'd have in your living room, except there was a mountain of them both years. You know, the 1973 year compared to the Wall of Sound, 1974, it looks like they just squished this everything together behind the band and added the big speaker uh, tweeter cluster behind them. The band's checkbooks also show the rental of an additional system for Des Moines 73 from Bob Hill Sound in St. Louis. Bob Glaza had seen the dead once before and remembered the hype around the sound system. I was living in Waterloo, which is about two hours north and east of Des Moines, the fairgrounds. Everybody was talking about all these speakers piled up on top of each other and the semi trucks full and all the people that it took to assemble it. So that was kind of the big part of the conversation on, Oh, you don't want to miss this show. You don't want to miss this show. As always, wherever they traveled when the grateful Dead arrived in town, it was in a subtly different configuration than the version that had last passed through. Donna Jean. If we're talking about 73, That's when I got pregnant in the spring of 73. So I did all of those shows up until the end of November, until I was eight months pregnant (laughs) on the road. I remember telling Garcia, we were in the Grateful Dead office, and we were standing next to the little portable refrigerator in the office, and Jerry was eating yogurt. And I said, Jerry... I'm pregnant. I, that's the way I told him that I was pregnant. I said, I'm pregnant. And he, I remember he, he was kind of in the middle of, you know, putting a spoon of yogurt in his mouth. And he, he just kind of shook his head and kind of grinned and, you know, oh, that's cool. He said, well, that's cool. And then with Robert Hunter, who is a, an enigma of a human being, I mean, I loved him so much, but he was, you never knew, you just never knew what he was going to say or where he was going to be at, you know. And so when I told Robert Hunter that I was pregnant, he goes, I will never forget it. He said, all women have that right except you. (laughs) 
that was a that was a hunterism. You know, he wasn't really serious, but he was being hunter. You know, with a dry, cool wit like that, he could be a psychedelic lyricist. You know, my perspective is, I was so much into being pregnant and having a baby. You know, and then being in one of the biggest rock and roll bands and and being on tour. It was not like. I was pregnant and sitting at an office doing secretarial work or something. You know, I was traveling and on stage and on planes, and it was very intense. It was. It was I had way double duty. That's the period covered by this box set and several others besides. Not to mention a few Dicks and Dave's picks, a few editions of Road Trips, an entry in the Download series, and one studio album. When you have another human being pressing up against your lungs, that's an issue. <laughs> and so, of course, it was it was harder to get a deep breath, you know, so I had to just manage as best I could. The Dead's business records reveal an entwined mess between the band's professional and personal finances, which we talked about with Joe Peel in our Garcia 73 episode. But it was sometimes a happy mess, with the band helping Donna and Keith not only buy a house in Stinson Beach, but furnish it with a piano. That was bought for Keith and me personally and was at our house in Stinson Beach. It was the most beautiful, beautiful nine-foot Steinway that had the most glorious sound. And I've heard a lot of Steinways, and this one was just pristine. The sound was just incredible. That'd be a Steinway Model D, serial number 428912B-2785 in case anybody wants to track down the God Show family Steinway. Check out our Donna Jean episode for more memories of that scene. The band also purchased an electric keyboard for Keith that spring, as he put it mildly on WAER that September. Yeah, I'm starting to get turned on to different, uh, different textures. was more from the Vancouver bird song, some wah-wah on the roads, too. Keith Godshow's roads would become one of the subtly defining sounds of the period. Though people track Jerry Garcia's guitars pretty obsessively, and it's not too hard to tell when a road shows up in the mix, the archives also reveal that Bill Kreutzmann was rocking a new drum kit in May sound of Bill the Drummer swinging on a mahogany thermoglass Ludwig kit with Roger's Super 10 snare drum, acquired from Frank's Drum Shop in Chicago for $964.50, minus $647 from an unspecified trade-in, shipped from Chicago to the house at 5th and Lincoln in the first days of May, ready to be broken in at the Des Moines fairground. It can be seen in pictures of the show. Earlier in the year, the day after the band's show at Maples Pavilion at Stanford University, the band did a complete gear inventory for insurance purposes. They listed three guitars totaling a value of $1,200, 
and one Alembic custom base valued at $5,000, around $34,000 today. By the time they got to Iowa, Jerry Garcia had some new gear too, but we'll get to that. It's getting near showtime. Promoter Steve White. We sold 12,000 tickets in advance, three at the door, 3,000 at the door. Promoter John Hoke. The tickets were priced at the exorbitant amount of $5 in advance and $6 the day of the concert. That's roughly $34 and $41 in modern terms. So we knew there'd be a lot of people coming up that day, and it turned out for most of it was beautiful weather, which in May, early May in Iowa is not a guarantee. It could have been doing a lot of really bad things. And we knew there'd be people, a lot of people, thousands of people coming up, and we didn't trust anybody to sell and take the money for the cash for these tickets. So we brought in our parents. My my parents, Jim's parents, Steve's parents were the ones in there. We had no security, nobody nobody guarding this stuff. And 3,000 people are coming up there and buying tickets and giving all cash. And that's how we did it. They'd played in Iowa in February, but this was their only Midwest stop in the later spring. And lots of people came from out of town, like Bob Glaza and his sister. And I remember driving down there thinking, well, maybe we're going to see one of these semis. Maybe what will it look like? What, you know, is it, is it going to be just floating on air or is it going to be all decked out and fancied out with painting on the side of it? And it wasn't quite the dead they met in the road. We got stopped on the way down to Des Moines. There was a big traffic accident and we had to stop and Of course, we were a little bit nervous because we were, you know, all sorts of crazy high. And and we we, we thought the police, of course, were going to stop us for no good reason. I was living in Waterloo. It was a couple hours away. The the concert was a couple hours away. And I remember, I I think it was on a Mother's Day. And, And so we were kind of in hot water with our mothers. As Ralph Kiner once said, it's Mother's Day. So all you mothers out there, happy birthday. A renowned, nationally known boys glee club showed up to buy tickets. It was the Hells Angels. I mean, they were from all, I remember San Francisco, San Rafael, San Obispo, L.A., Phoenix on the back of their jackets and, you know, other parts of the western United States. They pulled up, parked right in front of the grandstand. But, you know, we didn't hear a peep out of them. Security was our friends. And back then, the security drank beer on the job. So, you know, it was a bunch of drunken security that was, you know, on the job there that day. Maybe 30 of our friends. Between 30 and 50. And yeah, but nobody with any experience or expertise in it. It was, you know, crazy by, you know, with hindsight. I can remember, though, a number of our friends were backstage and, you know, wives and girlfriends and like and and I I do remember that my wife at the time was uh was a big dead fan and Phil Lesh came off the stage and winked at her and she melted right on the spot. She thought that was the highlight that was the highlight of her life. Joe Gothier had come into contact with Music Circuit when he helped put on a dead show at the University of Iowa in February and sold tickets through the record store. He attests to some of the craziness. We were backstage in the parking lot for the backstage and we were in my fr- a friend of mine's car, and he spilled a quarter, quarter ounce of Coke on his 
carpet in his car. <laughs> so that was kind of strange watching people salvage that. It's not quite what the music circuit guys expected. Chaos. Chaos. We we didn't do a good job at all of this. Is our chance to be big shots, and we had all of our friends back there, and it was uh, it was a mess. But we were putting out a lot of fires. We we were busy, and we were working, and we were trying to make sure everything that. And I think part of it was making sure that the uh, you know the dead themselves were happy, that you know their crew was happy, that Bill and Barry, you know, they were you know ordering us around. So we were. We were hopping, uh, very little sleep there for a, for a couple of days. Wizard remembers Bill Graham's presence. Playing football with Barry Faye backstage. They had a football they were passing back and forth. But it was a day that Bill Graham went to work. Bill Graham was a stagehand. That was the 1973 year. He got in and, yeah, again, it was all of our friends that were the stagehands. So he saw an experience. Let's just put it that way. Barry Fay was up uh, making announcements, and this is before barricades were being used. And some kid kept grabbing at the microphone. Well, then the Grateful Dead came on and played, and the same kid was grabbing at Jerry's microphone. And off the side of a stage, like a bolt of lightning, Bill Graham came darting across the stage and did a stage dive into the audience and went out and grabbed the kid, threw him out of the show. Please welcome the Grateful Dead. Virginia, California, on my mind. Straddle that ground and road it past Raleigh on across Carolina. Every now and then, a dead tape will start with the sound mix slightly out of alignment, as you can hear. That's one way to tell this isn't a pure soundboard mix that captures only what was going into the hall, but rather a submix, run through a mixer and mixed with intention onto two track. Oftentimes, the recordist would spend the opening song getting the balance just right. But by the end of the promised land, things are hunky-dory. Bob Glaza. It wasn't a super hot day. You know, it was it was warm enough, but it, it wasn't really hot. We went in just to find a place to sit. There wasn't any going through. I'm sure we had a picnic basket or something to carry food in or drink in. And there was no kind of rifling through that to see what you were carrying in. It was all pretty loose as far as that goes. They had just piles and piles of speakers. And I don't remember it being so loud I couldn't think, but I do remember that the sound was Pretty amazing. It was a true dead marathon. Four hours and 21 minutes of music over three sets. 
They took their time, not really getting into extended jamming until later in the afternoon, playing some of their newest songs. John Van of the Des Moines Register described the scene as, quote, a rock concert that combined elements of circus, a convention of Shriners, and a department store shopping crowd three days before Christmas. I remember there was somebody walking around like in a jester suit or some sort of regalia or costume or outfit or whatever you want to call it. You know, there were a lot of halter tops. There were a lot of long flowing gowns. Most guys walked around without a shirt on, you know. And, you know, there was always cool uh, Grateful Dead t-shirts. One semi-new piece of music was what deadheads call the feeling groovy transition in between China Cat Sunflower and I Know You Rider. Dead had been playing variations on Simon and Garfunkel's Feeling Groovy since 1970, usually in Dark Star. But in spring 1973, it migrated gloriously into China Cat, where it lived until the band took their road hiatus in 1975. Grateful Dead archivist David Lemieux. This is a tour unlike... A lot of other tours in 72 and early 73, it is very well documented on photos. These five shows in particular, there are plenty of photos from all five shows. Many photographers, first of all, that you've got 20,000 people at each of these shows or more. And so lots of people uh, with amateur cameras, amateur photographers, but then lots of newspapers came out and professionals. So it's a very well-documented era visually. Unfortunately, no film, a little Super 8 stuff, but otherwise nothing. But there, there's a lot of photos. We'll once again shout out the Jerry Garcia instrument history by Mike Clem on the Grateful Dead Guide, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast, as well as Uli and Volke, the photo detectives. Their diligent work reveals Garcia playing a few rarely spotted guitars at the Des Moines show. In most of the pictures, Garcia is playing Alligator, the super-custom Stratocaster that we've discussed a few times, notably around the Munich stop of Europe 72, is primary guitar from mid-1971 to late 1973. But the Des Moines show is the only time Garcia is known to have played the Eagle, his first custom guitar by Alembic's Doug Irwin, commissioned in 1970, built from Curly Maple in 1971, and apparently not played on stage until Des Moines in May 1973. There's some particular out-of-tuneness by the time the band hits I Know You Rider, it made me wonder if it was the sound of guitar that wasn't quite ready for battlefield conditions. But just because Garcia didn't take to the Eagle, eventually passing it along to longtime roadie Ramrod, he was still quite taken by Doug Irwin's guitar skills. In the Grateful Dead Spring 1973 checkbook is a $500 check to Doug Irwin dated June 13th, exactly a month later, with a memo note, deposit on Garcia's guitar. 
It's the instrument that would become known as Wolf, and we'll pick up its story another day. But weirdly, and for reasons that aren't clear at a distance, Garcia actually played three guitars that day. It's interesting, Jerry playing different guitars just astounds me because, you know, I, I, I saw so many dead shows where, I mean, the thought of Jerry changing guitar, the, when I see other bands where, you know, the, the, the tech would run out and give the guitar player a tuned guitar every song, it's like, what is that? I mean, I didn't understand it. And then, you know, the Grateful Dead, literally all three of them on guitars and bass didn't change ever The other guitar was another singular piece that Garcia played in November and December 1972, and which resurfaced one last time in Des Moines. With giant numbers running up the fretboard, it's known as the Erlewine Strat. And to tell us a little about it, please welcome from Erlewine Guitars, Dan Erlewine. Let's take another detour, shall we? We're going to bop back briefly now to 1967. When the dead played in Ann Arbor, where I was from in those days, they played at West Park and... Our band opened for him. We had a, band, a blues band called the Prime Movers. That was Endless Blues from the self-titled Prime Movers release. For you Michigan freak lorists, this particular lineup of the Prime Movers that played with the Dead did not feature drummer Iggy Pop, but rather Jesse Crawford, who later became the MC5's hype man. And we kind of laid around outside the band show when another band played and talked with Jerry. And uh, he came over to my shop because I had a repair shop and I was making some guitars and he wanted to come visit. And when he when he came over, I was I had just finished making a neck for a 1939 Martin D18 body that I had. It came without a neck and kind of beat up, but it was uh, one of my favorite guitars. And I made it. It was my first acoustic neck that I ever made. I had an ebony fingerboard on it, and I had numbers that were jigsawed out of ivory. So you had one, three, five, seven, nine, twelve, And he really liked that. He thought that was great. And he said, I want to I want to get a guitar from you, and I want those numbers in it. And we, he wanted a Stratocaster guitar, because I was also making guitars out of this black walnut that I had, electric guitars. And that was 67, and we went out to San Francisco at the end of that summer, and I saw Jerry again down on the Haight-Ashbury area, walking the streets, of course. He goes, hey, Dan, uh, I'm still serious about that guitar. I'll be getting a hold of you. But he never really got back a hold of me until late 69. And finally called me up and said, I, I want to get that guitar. So that's when I started making it for him. And when it was finally done in 71, we flew to uh, San Francisco and crossed the, the uh, Bay City Bridge up into the um, San Helena area of California in the wine country because my wife's uncle had a, a ranch in the top of the hills above San Helena. And Jerry drove up there to get his guitar. We shipped it out on the plane with us. And he drove up in, in a Porsche. I remember that. And he was just such a friendly guy. There's some sweet Super 8 footage of Dan passing the guitar to Garcia. 
we've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. There's one of them where uh, Jerry's holding the guitar like this and pointing at it. And another one where he's handing me money. I charged him 500 bucks for it. And he gave me $900, which was a huge, I mean, he was a generous man that way with, with money and with luthiers. He supported practically, I think, any guitar builder he met. He was, he was sharing his money. As with pretty much all of Garcia's guitars, it was tweaked. Really, it's, it's just a Stratocaster, except Jerry wanted a tunematic bridge like Gibson has. ABR one stop tailpiece. He didn't want a tremolo. He wanted a brass nut, and that was the first brass nut I'd ever made. To me, he invented the brass nut. But, or maybe Alembic invented that. I'm not sure. We'll refer you back to our Side B episode of the Skull and Roses season for a conversation with the late Rick Turner of Alembic and his adventures with fine brass. It had Brazilian rosewood numbers inlaid in it. And the neck was uh, maple, hard maple. And... Rosewood pickguard, strat pickups, and pretty basic other than that. The guitar disappeared from circulation after Des Moines. Lately, Dan's been making updated models. We've posted links to his work at dead.net slash deadcast. Though I know the lore, I can't say my ear is fine-tuned enough to pick out the sounds of the Erlewine strat versus alligator versus eagle. All speculation welcome in the comments on this episode's page, dead.net slash deadcast. Now back to the dead show. The end of the first set featured a one-time pairing instigated by Bob Weir that worked surprisingly well, tagging around and around onto the end of Don't Ease Me In. been a contender. For the most part, it was quite a groovy day, but not entirely. I'll throw a content warning here for a little bit of violence, maybe forward three minutes if you need to. Over to promoter Steve White. But some kid was, had bolt cutters and was trying to cut his way through the fence, and Jim, our, our partner, went and took the bolt cutters away from him, and when he turned his back, the kid pulled out a knife and stabbed him in the back. And so Jim came walking through the backstage and he had these bib overalls on and he said, I just got stabbed. And I, I kind of looked at him funny, but when, when I turned around and looked at him, every time his heart beat, blood would squirt out uh, the hole in his uh, pants. And I knew who this kid was. I said, is it the guy with the long hair and glasses with a bunch? And he said, yeah. So four of us went out in the audience trying to find this kid and we found him. I came up from, he was a little guy, about 140 pounds. I came up from behind him, put a bear hug on him down by his wrist, and I picked him up, started to carry him out. And somehow he got his knife out of his uh, holster, and he started stabbing me with it. But I had his wrist so constrained, the only place the blade luckily went was into my belt. So, you know, it didn't poke through. But while he's trying to stab me, 
he stabbed himself. And so his friends all surrounded us. I let him go. He ran through the grandstand. The four of us chased him out through the grandstand down Grand Avenue to the main gate that was closed. And he turned around. He said, I'm going to waste you four guys if you come any closer. And all of a sudden, this kid out of nowhere comes and tackles the guy and takes the knife away from him. Well, Bill Graham wanted to meet this guy, so we brought him to the Fairgrounds Administration Building. And Bill Graham says, that was a very brave thing you did, uh, Mr. whatever his name was. Bill Graham always called everybody Mr. when I was around him. And the kid says, I'm from the south side of Chicago, so all he had was a knife. And yes, Jim was miraculously okay. He went to an ambulance that uh, checked some EMTs, and they told him he was real lucky that a, the knife went in between an organ, his kidney, and his spine. And uh, they stitched him up, I guess. But besides that, I haven't come across any remotely negative memories of the day, and many were outright magical. Bob Glaza. And probably my biggest memory of it was when they played Looks Like Rain and went into Here Comes Sunshine and it, there was clouds moving across, at least where I could see, could see and behind the stage. But it's all right, because I love you. And the clouds would cover the the sun, and it surely looks like rain, and then back and forth. It, that was pretty cool. I'll still sing you The Des Moines Register noted this moment as well in their review, writing, At times, the subject of the jam was the weather. When clouds passed overhead, the musicians got into a chant with their music. It looks like rain. It looks like rain. As the clouds passed, another chant came forth. Here is sunshine. Here is sunshine. Eh, close. At some point in the day, it did rain a little bit, though people's memories differ on when it happened. The scrupulous reporter at the Des Moines Register noted that at about 4 p.m., all the singing about the weather backfired and things turned ugly. Temperatures dropped 10 degrees, a brisk wind started chilling the crowd, and a few raindrops fell. It was a, a, a unique kind of rain, a, a, just a short-lived rain. Didn't get muddy or anything like that. A very light rain, 
which is kind of uncommon for Iowa. Usually you'd get a drenching rain. Whizzer. It rained. It just stopped raining when the dead came on. It was what the stage was wet. Jerry was getting electrocuted on stage and he got electrocuted a couple of times. Yikes. And then the rainbow came out over the stage just as the rain stopped. It was pretty cool. Bob Glaza. I would say midway through the show. Uh, it wasn't anything dramatic right at the end or anything. I don't I don't remember anything dramatic about it. The most drama, like I say, was was when they were playing. Joe Gauthier. They started playing Here Comes Sunshine. And there, there was a double rainbow. It makes me think of the ice cream kid. That was something. It was a double rainbow. John Hoke. It just blew us away when that happened. I think even the band was really taken by that. It was it was very special. Photographer Larry Kasparek caught one of the rainbows. We've posted a link to his shot at dead.net slash deadcast. Jim owned a maintenance company at the time, and one of his employees uh, attended the show. And the following day, he said, how did you guys make that rainbow come out over the stage? He thought it was something, <laughs> some production aspect. Promoter and Deadcast guest Peter Shapiro experienced a similar round of wonderment when rainbows appeared over one of the Fairly Well shows in Santa Clara in 2015. Maybe it's the obvious. It's, it was a great show, and people had a wonderful time, and people were rocking to it, and they played beautifully, and they they played for hour after hour with just a few Five breaks hours. there, and it was it was a magical day. After Here Comes Sunshine, and the version of the rainbow that appeared at least in Joe's stub, the day's serious jamming started. There's a 30-minute version of playing in the band that floats across rolling seas. Waves get bigger and storms rage. There are no obvious transoceanic whirlpools, and the ship emerges. Garcia sounds the main ten theme as if to indicate he's spotted land. the third set, the big jam sequence is quite symbolic of the era, and they'd repeat it a few weeks later in San Francisco. He's gone, into truckin', into the other one, into Eyes of the World, into China Doll. We talked extensively about He's Gone in our Netherlands episode of Europe 72. By spring of 73, it had grown a vocal outro that had began as a studio overdub on the live album.
eyes, hearts, and ears of many, He's Gone had become a tribute to Pigpen, who passed away only two months previously, with its soulful bluesy outro. By spring, they'd also built a transition that allowed them to upshift right into Truckin', one of the few places where a count-off and a segue mark might coexist, and it got tighter as the year went on. We got way into trucking in our American beauty season, of course. In Des Moines, Weir substituted a regional variant into the lyrics for what I think was the first time. Also geographically accurate, if you pick up Route 80 off the George Washington Bridge in Manhattan, you can take it to Des Moines, almost all the way to the fairgrounds. That spring, Truckin' had also developed a new peak, signaled by Garcia playing a higher octave version of the riff, that they'd also learned to play a little less sloppily. It was a period of mini duo jams between Phil Lesh and Billy Kreutzmann. And an era of mini gnarly other one entrances. Sick feedback, Weir. It's a full 20-minute excursion. It gets into some conversational weirdness en route to the first verse. And the post-verse is a long drumless float, an origin point of Latter-day space segments. Out the other side, almost like a crossfade, comes the piece that pins this sequence as Along with Here Comes Sunshine, Eyes of the World was Garcia and Hunter's newest set piece and included the long outro in 7-8 time that the band had developed collectively on stage earlier that year, only played in 73 and 74, which we'll unpack more fully in the future. (laughs) ¶¶ 
And at this performance, as it was in many of its earliest versions, it was Eyes of the World moving into the incredibly fragile China doll. Pistol shot nine The bells of heaven Tell me what you've done it for No, I won't tell you a thing In our American Beauty season, we discussed whether or not Ripple and Broke Down Pelvis were written to be played together like a miniature suite. And I wonder if Eyes of the World and China Doll weren't similarly conceived. Another topic to bookmark in this incredibly rich year of Grateful Dead music. Other memories, by the way, have the rainstorm coming later in the day, with a rainbow emerging during Sugar Magnolia. So let's imagine a stub where the rainbow's appearing here, too. Sunshine daydream Coming from the street dream Sunshine daydream Waiting in a cold dream Crawling on out your window Going, going with a window They never gonna miss us For the dead, it was a hearty Sunday afternoon in Iowa. Steve White of Music Circuit. When this show was over, when this show was over, Bill Graham got on the phone to me and he went, Mr. White, you fucked this show up. You fucked it up, you fuck. He said, the only thing you know how to do is sell tickets. And, and that, that, I guess, is what brought him back the second time. I'm surprised Bill Graham and the Grateful Dead gave us a second chance, if you want to know the truth. John Hoke. Our arrangement with Barry Fay was that we would split the profits 50-50 with him. And at the end of it, Bill Graham says, we're going to do this third, third, third. And we go, well, we have this deal that's 50-50. And he says, if you ever want to have the Grateful Dead here again, it's third, third, third. We said, yes, sir. And Bill Graham did, in fact, work with Music Circuit presentations again, bringing the wall of sound to the fairgrounds on June 16th, 1974, later released as Road Trips Volume 2, Number 3. After that first year, he was pleased at the second year. We heard a lot, and, and we, we went from 15,000 to 18,000. I wonder to this day if Bill Graham were still alive, if there'd be anything like a live nation. I don't think there would be. He, I think he would have used his power to keep it the way it was rather than the Walmart of concert promoters now, live nation. We can dream, Wizard. The music system that Wizard pioneered continued to serve music circuit presentations all the way through 1990. It was the beginning of an enterprising period. In addition to, uh, to these rock concerts, Steve and Jim and I opened a bar called The Daily Planet, and, and we had a lot of live music. We brought in some good music, you know, Sons of Champlin. I can remember we had them, Freddie King, 
Harvey Mandel. The bar didn't quite work, but the concert business did. Though John Hoke and Jim Henneberry dropped out later in the 70s for more traditional careers, all three remained tight. And Wizard kept presenting with Music Circuit for decades, building the Iowa Jam and bringing countless gigs to the region. The Dead had a gig the week after Des Moines, and so do we. See you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in to the good old Grateful Dead cast. We'd like to thank our guests in this episode, Donna Jean Gottschow, Gail Helland, Rita Gentry, Rosie McGee, Sally Mann Romano, Steve White, John Hoke, Candace Brightman, Dan Erlewine, Sepp Donahauer, Bob Glaza, Joe Gothier, and David Lemieux. Extra special thanks to friend of the Dead cast, David Gans, for contributing audio from his interview archive. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share an episode on your social media and give us your 1973 tour stories by recording yours over at stories.dead.net. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.